0: Hello, I'm David Goldsmith, and welcome to the interview series, The Age of Infinite. Now, our purpose here is to provide you, the listener, with a diverse and informative discussion whereby you can imagine, understand, see potential ways in which we can make the Earth a better place to live by expanding or accelerating a space-based economy, and then to establish sustainable life, not, sustain, uh, not self-sustaining life on the Moon. So we're encompassing this new terminology we're using called MIRTH. Today we have on the line a, a friend as well, uh, Grant Anderson. How are you, Grant?
1: I'm doing great. Thank you, David.
0: And he is the co-founder of Paragon, which uh, he founded back in 1993. An interesting thing about his bio is he's an expert in life support. So through his history and his company is focused on life support type services to people who go into space. So Grant, uh, what's the title that we've given this program? I've
1: titled it The Forgotten Element of Exploration.
0: The Forgotten Element of Exploration. Now the reason this time I asked that question is because I forgot to ask you in, in advance and it's not because we're not capable of this. We spoke last night and there was a different title and you changed it. The Forgotten Element of Exploration. Cool. So you have some bullet points or some an outline that we're going to be following?
1: I do. I have four bullet points, actually. The first one is mm-hmm. that life support is the forgotten element of space exploration. It's really something that's hardly mentioned in science fiction. It's hardly mentioned during any of the Mercury Gemini Apollo news features. If you go back and look at them, it's online now. You know, rockets are sexy and astronauts are sexy, but life support isn't. That's one issue. Um, The second bullet point is that the person and company that provides life support will be the most important element of exploration organization, whether that's NASA, whether it's a private organization, it will be the most important element and it will garner the most attention, at least from the inside, if not from the outside of the organization. The third bullet point is that over $10 billion will be spent on spacecraft life support in the next two decades. And the final bullet point is uh, what is developed, and this is bringing it back to the Earth element, it will be key to many things on Earth, especially the water crisis that we're starting to enter now as far as the availability of fresh water
0: okay perfect all right so let's let's start with this the first piece on your list life support is the forgotten element of of space exploration so give me a sense of what you're thinking
1: well you know i've run into this for 24 years of running paragon that, that um very often i'm talking to the spacecraft people well you know some big company prime or whatever that's building a spacecraft. And they're worried about the rockets and the, the jets and the avionics systems and the guidance and control and everything else. And then you say, well, but the AV- the environmental control and life support system, what we call the ECLA system, is uh is is what you're really launching. It's your payload. You never launch a human into space without a life support around him. It would be a very short trip for them and very agonizing, I might add. <laughs> and so you don't you don't see the spacecraft as being driven by that life support system and the humans involved because you've got a bunch of rocket people that are trying to design spacecraft. And uh, I often say that, you know, every single aerospace uh, rocket that NASA has ever built has been driven as far as its requirements by keeping the humans alive. They've, they've had to reduce the number of G's, the number of gravity, gravities that the astronauts see on takeoff and on reentry. They, they have to, Make sure that these systems work even when the rest of the electrical system goes down, a little bit like Apollo and Apollo 13. But then people still go back and say, "Well, yeah, the life support system. We'll worry about that later. Let's start working on the rockets." Um, So,
0: so what's your take for how or why that's happening? Well, I've got I've got a theory. So I'm going to pass it by you after you're done. I'd like to hear yours.
1: My theory is that it is such a second nature thing. You know, there's multiple industries, major industries in the world that, that people build wealth around You know, the, the energy industry, transportation, information, housing, agriculture and food and life support as far as breathing and actually keeping at the right temperature, unless you're living in some extremely remote part of the world where you have to bring in everything, it's just there for you. You just breathe. Nobody has ever left a hotel in the morning on a business trip and said, gee, I wonder if I have enough oxygen to make it through the day. And so I think that's one of the reasons it just stays in the back of people's minds.
0: I, I, I'll pass this by you and you tell me if you think there might be a component of this. In the development of let's just concentrate on the space activity and Mirth or International Space Station or any of these type of approaches that we're trying to build. The first challenge has always been the technological part that is void of humans. So for twenty years they might be working on trying to just get something out of the gravity well or out of atmosphere. So their entire design has been, let's just get this taken care of before we put a human into it. So as you've got engineers and experts and people around who are focused on that, then you're adding a new dimension at the very end. So I think it's possibly just because the structure is built around not having humans the majority of the time. Well, Does that make sense?
1: I, that would make sense early in the, early say in the Mercury days and, and Gemini and Apollo, but we've been building human spacecraft now since the 1960s, you know? It's, we've got 50, more than a half a decade, half a, a century I should say, of history behind us and you know I've been involved in every single human spacecraft preliminary design and concept study since about 1999 and you know it's still a problem then you, when they know oh. that they're setting out to set to launch humans into space and bring them back safely and they it's still oh these three people over here are handling eclis let's go talk about the rocket <laughs> just-
0: now, how, how do you sp- how do you spell eclis
1: ECLSS, stands for environmental control and life support system.
0: Environmental control and life support systems.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: The the uh, in Project Moonshot, we've tried to focus on trying to eliminate all of these acronyms. I you were at the uh, pioneering. Not the pioneering, the uh, Next Giant Leap out in Hawaii, I believe. That's when I first met you?
1: No, we actually met in Santa Monica, David. Oh, we did? At, okay. At a conference there uh, on the beach, and I can't remember the name of the conference right now, frankly.
0: Oh, okay. Yes, I, I know what you're talking about. Um, okay, that's a different one. I, it'll come to me. So in the case of the... We don't use the acronyms because the first time I went to Next Giant Leap out in Hawaii... The first day, I couldn't understand anything.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think it's a it's no, I, like the secret handshake or the or the ring, you know, that it's it, it, it makes you part of it, the club when you start understanding the acronyms.
0: Well, it doesn't. It makes you part of the club, but what it also does is distance other people. So, if we're going to go to the ISS and we need a dragon, and we're going to go to L two, and then we have to have a thruster, and people just lost. So, I, I think that one of the Methodologies, and I'm throwing this in very early uh, and I, probably we should ask this question is how do we change this behavior is that because there are acronyms being used people are not focused on those words. So the minute you said environmental control and life support system that w- set of words I'm thinking life support and systems and environment and everything else. But if you say ECLUS IC- yeah. even though I'm in the industry I'm, it might not resonate the same way.
1: No, I agree. I, I agree. That's true. I mean, we always shorten it to life support, and it's important to understand what that encompasses. It's not only the air that we breathe. So it's making sure you have enough oxygen and it's at the right pressure. That you're scrubbing out the carbon dioxide and the and the waste gases that we put out as humans, but it also encompasses the 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 waste system. How, what do you do with the uh, the fecal matter and the and the urine? Uh, it's all part of that. How do you feed the human? is another part of life support. Um, and then it's also thermal control. No, uh, humans, after we're breathing and we're, we're happy with that, then the next thing is we want to make sure we're at the right temperature. We actually call it the, there, there's, a, there's a law of freeze in life support. It's three minutes, which is how long you can last without oxygen. It's three days, which is how long you can last without water. And three weeks is how long you can last without food. Uh, and that's, that encompasses a lot of what we do uh, just by, by saying that, that law of threes. Uh, but then we also bring in thermal control. Uh, humans like to be 75 plus or minus five degrees, roughly. Uh, although I live in Tucson, Arizona, and I'm very rarely at that temperature outside. <laughs> <ever>.
0: <laughs> I understand. Uh, so you, you've broken down a few of them, and i just like to get them in my head to understand this. And the Environmental Controls and Life Support System, you have waste, food, thermal what are the other major categories that someone should be looking at or thinking about
1: well um you said waste uh food and thermal and and definitely the other part is air air revital is it's the air pressure uh you know what really matters to a human is what the partial pressure is of oxygen that is the amount of oxygen that you have so if you have a 10 pounds per square inch system and you have 30% oxygen, that means you have three pounds per square inch partial pressure of oxygen. That's extremely important in what we do, making sure you are providing the right amount of oxygen so that the human body can function correctly.
0: So those are the four categories that you've got, air, thermal, food, and waste. Would that be the four pillars of environmental control and life support systems? Yes. Okay. Uh, Tell me, how do you, how do you go about Making the, you know, life support is a forgotten element of space exploration is the category here. Uh, how can, you've explained why we think, or we've kind of talked a little bit of why someone might forget about it. When they start to look at it, what are some of the challenges that you find when you're going through all four of them?
1: Well, one of them is that when you're dealing with these, chemo- it's, it, it- It's a complex thing of chemicals, you know, and water and and uh, and then very mechanical things like pressure control that we find that that the ability to um, think about that and then operate a system in that environment for a long period of time that cannot fail. You know, you, you can the oxygen system can crap out for a little while as long as you have enough oxygen in your air to be able to have time to fix it. But, and, and the water system can, you know, as long as you have some in storage, you have these buffers. But in the end, if you do not have those operating for a sufficient amount of time, you will lose the crew. And so what we've uh, run into a lot is that people very often think that the life support systems are something you can just test like like a mechanical object. You know, you can... You can take an airplane and bend it a whole bunch of times very quickly until it breaks. And then you've discovered how much fatigue it can do. And you can equate that to how many flights it can do and all that. Problem is when you're testing a life support system, nothing happens fast. You, You end up with very, very difficult to control failure modes. Like you can have bacteria growing in the water. You can have filters that are clogging. So your air filters can clog your, you know, your, your filters that are, that are filtering the air that's coming out of your pressure control system can clog. Your, your waste management system, It was the, the, the toilet on the space shuttle was notorious for breaking down and fecal matter would start floating around the cabin and everything else. So it, it's almost impossible to make those things fail like they will fail in space on Earth. And you definitely cannot make it fail quickly because biology doesn't do things quickly. A bacteria will grow as fast as a bacteria will grow as long as it has good conditions. And it will maybe grow slower if it's in worse conditions, but it will still grow at a finite rate. And so all of those things conspire to make life support an extremely difficult thing to build, test, and ensure, and ensure with a probability that's as good as you can make it, that it's not going to fail when you go off on a long trip somewhere.
0: So yeah, I'm I'm picturing the fact that you can get bacteria into a water system and you could have tested it over and over and over again on Earth, but somebody who's doing something on this vessel uh, can cause that to happen and it could be random. So you really have to account for all sorts of different types of mistakes or errors that could, or, or just chaos theory, just something happening. And then... Yeah, you're you're trying to do it in an environment. Now, how long do you test something? I mean, do you test it for weeks, months? How do you know if you've tested it enough?
1: Well, what you try to do uh, is to test something for up to two to three times what you really think you're going to use it for. So if you're going to run a 10-day experiment up on the space station or when the shuttle was flying, we we flew many experiments that were just as long as a shuttle flight, which was 10, 11, 12, maybe up to 14 days. You would try to test it for 28, 30 days to see if there's anything going to start happening that that didn't ha- that that otherwise wouldn't happen in the mission timeline. And the reason you do that is zero gravity, the microgravity you're in biology ha- does behave differently. And where uh, an example is your your you might have a, a tub of water and it's in gravity though so so the tub of water has a surface and the surface is contacting the side of the the surface of the water is contacting the side of the tub so there's very little interaction between the metal of the tub and the water now you get into zero gravity and that water is anywhere it could be in the tub it's all over so it's it's brushing more of the walls. so you might have measured the water and said okay we're going to use a stainless steel tank and you measure the water after a month and you say the water hasn't absorbed any of the metals or or dissolved any of the metals from the stainless steel into the water so the water is still safe, you might get into space and find out that's no longer true because you're wetting so much more of the area. So that's a very simple example uh, of of what might happen and why you test things for a long time because the the environment is still different. There's no way to test long-term in zero gravity except to go into space and test it in zero gravity.
0: So my mind is immediately racing to how do you test something, for example, uh, we, we focus on Mirth moon and Earth, mm-hmm. and that's a right now with current technologies, that's a three day ride. When you're looking at going to Mars, where you're looking uh, up to two years to get to uh, the planet in terms of the cycle of where you, you hit, how do you test that? or you just bring extra parts well
1: uh, well that's it there is actually some very interesting studies on do you worry about do you make something reliable by making redundant or do you make it reliable by making it maintainable and uh, in general your car is maintainable something goes wrong with it you replace it and that's how a car can last for hundreds of thousands of miles Um, and and it's true in space too you really want to be able to make things maintainable we found that reliability for when you get to long duration missions doesn't work very well, but how do you test it? Uh, NASA is working on that. they they're actually very much emphasizing right now testing things on the space station. Uh, I had a person at headquarters at NASA tell me that more than 80 and maybe even 90% of the failures they've seen with life support have happened due to the zero gravity, microgravity environment of space. So they really want to get things up in space and test them because there's just no other way to do it. You, there is no anti-gravity machine on Earth that can turn off gravity. So you have to go into space and uh, and go into a microgravity environment. How do you test it then? You 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 run it through its paces. Uh, uh, a kind of a, a not so well-known secret of the life support systems on station is very few of them have run more than a half a year without having some sort of failure that needed to be addressed by the ground. And whether that meant they had to tell the astronauts how to fix it or they had to manifest a new piece of hardware that they had to send up on the next rocket going up, whatever, they really have not ever demonstrated a quote-unquote fail-safe or robust system that will last for the full three years of a round-trip to Mars.
0: So so the IOT technology that's being developed is going to be extremely useful. The Internet of Things giving uh, more and with artificial intelligence, giving more pre-diagnostic failures that couldn't be, happen as compared to waiting for them to happen.
1: Yeah, I can't mention the name, but there is a company that has an extremely good technology where they actually measure what's happening in your ground test. They measure perhaps what's happening in your, your space test and they run that through an AI environment and so then they can plug that into the into the into the instrumentation, so that it will actually predict failures. But it, it's it's pretty tough. And of course, then you only get to predict the failures that you actually saw on the ground. If you have a brand new failure, the system is yes, is sort of, that doesn't know about it. So you know have to have it. enough it examples. W T F and calls home. So sort
0: so of to to kind of re- this life support is a forgotten element. I I want to jump. Uh, outside mm-hmm. of the domestic U.S. market and the domestic or the group of individuals who are working on the projects it seems that you've been working on if we were to look around the world at other uh, research facilities um, uh, production facilities who are making uh, spacecraft do we have the same challenges where it's still also the forgotten element
1: yeah, this is universal. I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm have been very privy to the biological uh, long-duration experiments going on in Russia. Uh, there have been various different things going on in Japan. They have a facility that uh, is testing ecosystems. In that case, they're, they're both physiochemical systems or people, things that don't use plant life, and then there's biological systems. Uh, everybody is testing this, but it's a fraction of the budget of everything else. Um, you know, we don't talk in billions in the life support industry. That's why my third point about it's a 10 billion is going to be spent on it. We normally don't talk that type of money. The life support system, for example, on space station cost about $130 billion in today dollars to build about a half a billion of it was spent on the life support system. What's the part that breaks down the most? The life support system.
0: Well, some people have recently said to me, we don't have the same taste for exploration that in the old days you actually sacrificed life Mm -hmm. to explore. You knew that was part of the game, the gamble. And today we're trying to be so safe in the exploration that we don't often find the challenges we could be finding if we were a little bit more adventurous as human beings. So... So uh, number two on your list, and I think we've covered some of them, but give me some more on provides life support most important. Give me what you where you want to take us on that?
1: Well, I, this is why Paragon exists and and um, is that because life support is so critical to what's going on, and it doesn't matter if you're talking the the Mirth system or you're going to Mars or the humans expand all the way out to Pluto, the life support systems and how they work, and how reliable they are, are what's going to enable humans to explore. Um, And so the company, and in fact the organization that has the best grasp and the best technology for life support is going to be in the driver's seat. Um, And frankly, that's Paragon's business plan in a nutshell. We, We want to make sure that we're developing the life support technology that is so good that nobody else can make better And we're going to be the ones who people have to turn to for life support. It's a it's a guaranteed business, so to speak. Um, It's, you know, the explorers of the age, they always had to have food and stuff. They always had to have air. Of course, they had to have shelter, but they could all live off the land to a large extent, even in the North Pole or wherever else you can always build an igloo right for 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 um, shelter. But Going around the universe, and this is why I brought up sci-fi, if, you, if anybody reads sci-fi, they know that very rarely is the life support system considered part of the plot. It is something that just happens. Uh, you know, at Heinlein, people put on spacesuits and jump out of the airlock in seconds all the time. Uh, they, they, they go between stars, and it never says anything about the life support system. It's all about bussered ramjets and all sorts of other technology. It's just not a sexy technology, but it's an essential technology. So.
0: Well, the what was the movie just recently where the meteor went through? They were on that long journey, to um, mm-hmm. a ninety-year journey.
1: Jennifer Lawrence was in it. I know. Yes, Jennifer I'm Lawrence. I'm Jennifer thinking Lawrence. of
0: the movie. I don't remember the name of it.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it will come up in a second uh, in my mind too, but. Yeah, and in fact, it went through, but notice what they really, the life support system really wasn't part of that. It went through, and spoiler alert, it it went through part of the computer system, and so the... But it wasn't life support. ...controlling the vehicle started to break down, and it started to compensate for the problems with this meteor going through the shielding, But, but... In reality, the life support system was never part of the deal, you know, and they weren't going to choke. They, they weren't dying of life support problems. They were dying because the spacecraft itself was going, it was dying. It was dying. Yeah. Yes.
0: So, so here's the, 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 I guess the $10 billion question. Mm-hmm. If in fact humans have not put this as their priority at the top of the list, And you've been advocating this, and this is your business. Mm -hmm. And using an assumption that, uh, or a phrase that uh, I like to use, it's the way I look at the world, is people fall in love with their own ideas. Mm -hmm. It's very easy for people to fall in love with their own ideas. How are you going to change? It doesn't have to be public perception, but how are you going to change perception enough in the industry that moves you from number let's use a number seven to number one. What are you going to do?
1: Well, you know, I'm, I, to, the cynical side of me says they're going to fail and then have to come back to us. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it, screw it,
0: up, it, screw up and then come back to us and we'll, we'll help you solve yeah, this.
1: There's never enough money to do it right, but there's always enough money to fix it. Right. That's, that's uh, an adage that we use a fair amount. Um, I, I, I will say, that, you know, there is a minority of the community and there is a community. I just came back from the International Conference on Environmental Systems in Charleston, South Carolina last month, last week. And there is a community there of 400 people that are working on life support, thermal control. However, I also look at the budget of everybody that went to that conference and then look at the budget of, say, the rocket people. And it's still a fraction. It's still in, in the order of an order of magnitude less. I think how it's going to have to be solved in the end is some of the emerging market that we see for cislunar, for going back to, to the moon and back, and where we're safe enough that we can abort and escape, and after about the third time we've had to abort and escape and come back to Earth and say, well, darn, you know, busted again here, um, that there, there's going to be a shift in perception on what's going on. You know, every single technology to go to Mars has an existence proof except for life support and we still look at the dollar values being spent and life support is not the one that's getting the most money. Now, if you talk to the people who control the budget, they say well, it's getting enough money. We're doing everything you know, that we need to do. Uh, I'm skeptical of that. I would say they are people with their heart in the right place and they're working their rear ends off trying to make it work. But I think they're underestimating the issue.
0: Okay, so I'm. will we'll address that in one second. I want to go back. You used the term mm-hmm. called cislunar. lunar. Short definition of what that means, because that's one of those nomenclature. Uh, There's uh, words that people don't know. In,
1: yeah, in this and actually, slide. smurf, as you use, is is maybe a, a good over encompassing term. Cislunar is a space term that means anything that involves both the moon and Earth. In a symbiotic relationship associated with orbits, so you go, you cycle back to the moon and back to Earth and back to the moon and back to Earth. So, cis lunar is a way of saying you you extend out to the to the to the moon uh, environment. Frankly, I like smirth better myself.
0: But we're, we're calling it mirth. M e m e
1: a r t h. Moon Mir- and Earth. Yeah, sorry, smirth was wrong. Sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah no, that's okay. That's
0: that's that, that's okay. <laughs> we're using moon and Earth as right. a means to say to the average person, and we. When we look, part of Project Moonhut's approach is uh, to development is to get the dialogue extended past the group of people who's, who are already within the industry. Yeah. So the only way to do that is if we have nomenclature, language, taxonomy, tools that someone who's seven years old can replicate, who's 15 years old, because of those ideas that we're going to find that revolutionize, evolutionize, transform, redefine the space industry, are from that individual who's 14 years old in their garage today, yet they have to study the manual of space. <laughs> but if you had just said to them, we're working in mirth, oh yeah, yeah, that's moon and earth, I got it, Yeah. No, no, I don't need any more. And so we're using and creating within our, our project terminology that allows us to be able to, to do that and to work in that space. And, and we're making it simple for people to engage. And that expands the, the group of people uh, who are participating. So the, I guess the question really becomes, you know, talking about moving it up, it's the most important and, and you're looking at budgets as a priority, and you just said that you, someone has to kind of find that they fail to be able to, to move up in the roster list. There are scenarios where they won't fail. So they will, it will still be how fast can we do it, how far can we go it, how big of a payload can we bring. Uh, maybe we can at one point get an AI to figure this out so that we don't even have to think about it when we're on the, the vessel. So maybe it's not solving the question of moving from number seven to number one. Maybe it's the question of how do we ensure that environmental controls and life support systems are done as well as they need to be to expand our capabilities within MIRTH or beyond?
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So maybe the question... I, I can't give you the name of the industry because saying it out loud would not be a good thing. There's an industry I was working with, and they had been fighting to be accepted in the industry, uh, in, actually in community, and they were struggling and struggling and struggling. And I normally when I'm speaking, I am also re-digesting information to help move the organization forward. And I looked at them and I said, Why? Why do you need to have this happen? You are already there. You're already at the table. You're already playing. And without giving away the details, uh, I could say it in that, in that light. You are already at the table with environmental controls and life support. If it's more capital you need to be able to do something, then let's find a way to get that capital. If it's more space within the vessel or within the, whatever we're designing... Then let's figure out a way to get there. To move that up, environmental controls and life support, to a higher level, I, I still think guys go vroom. They want to see an engine move. They, you, know, I, you, you never have to teach a, a baby, a baby boy at least, because our boys did it. We watched this happen. Someone told us if we tried this, you'll see it work. If you don't do vroom, a baby boy will do it. Mm-hmm. So we didn't have girls, so I can tell you with our boys, they went vroom. Well, maybe they do, we just like the power, the energy, the other pieces. Maybe we just need to ensure that life support and environmental controls are done just amazingly well.
1: Yeah, we do. I will point out though that every exploration technology, whether it's, you know, the the, the Santa Maria, you know, the the Columbus was on or whatever, they tend to get pushed to their limits. And they always get pushed to the limits, I would say, until they are reliable enough to go somewhere. And then they become a, a commerce item, you know, a ship that will, will uh, you know, do commerce between, you know, somewhere the Vikings of Norway and, and maybe the East Coast of mm-hmm. England. But to get there, there was a bunch of boats built that didn't make it there because they kept going farther and farther. And then after a little while, they would sink and they'd say, why? And they'd go back and redesign. So every every subsystem in a spacecraft, too, I think is the same way. When we go to explore out, and say you do do a system, and it shows uh, in tests and stuff that'll last three years, and so we go to Mars, and we come back, and the life support system works great. Well, great, now we're gonna go to Jupiter, and we're gonna try to see if we can get around uh, EO's, uh, Europa, the, the moon. Oh, do we need to redesign this life support system? Well, it worked fine going to Mars, and we'll push it a little bit farther and what and, and eventually we'll find the limits of it
0: and so 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 but you just you just proved the point mm-hmm. that it will always be one of those pieces right. that isn't as sexy and is that okay
1: it's okay for me as long as somebody is as paying me to make the next version of it. Um, but well,
0: uh, I I mean in a theoretical scope yeah. is that we we get to a place we get to the moon or we get to Mars whatever uh, destination there is or we're just working out in space, and the next, so someone says I want to go further. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what are they going to look at first? Life support? Is that where they're going to put the cash? No, they're going to say, we need a faster, better, stronger technology. We're going to use laser propulsion. Or we're going to use whatever is created. And we're going to use that to go faster. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, they're going to say, okay, wait, 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 wait. Hold on a minute. We've got to bring in this environmental controls and life support thing here. Okay, they now have to last that long. Oh, my God. I hope, I hope there are people working on this. No. So we maybe just have to make it sexy for the people who are interested in it.
1: That Well, I, I agree that's true, the, the, that it ultimately <clears throat> it's the people who have to make the mission happen and, and be successful that have to understand the priorities involved. But that's not necessarily the, chase, uh, the case. And in fact, one of the interesting things uh, about how NASA works and, and a lot of other space industries, too, or space, uh, space organizations is there are two sets of people, those who build, design, and build, and test, and say, this rocket's ready to go, and those are the people who actually operate the thing. And if you ever talk to them, they hate each other. Really? <laughs> the engineers okay. engineers are all thinking, these ops guys always break everything. Uh, you know, in fact, it's a joke that what we do is put things in front of the astronauts, and the first thing we try to do is see what they'll break first. Um, and then on the ops side, they're cussing at the engineers saying nobody in their right mind if they knew how these things were going to be used would have designed it this way. And there's always that tension between the two. One of the things we try to do as an organization and, and is to make sure we know both sides of this story, uh, especially because the environmental control system is so intimately involved with the performance and capabilities of the astronaut. If they're if they're worrying about their life support system, they really can't be effective in their mission. They can't do the rest of the ops. So we try to make sure we stay on both sides of the fence. And, and, um, and in fact, that's why I started Paragon, because I love that interaction. I love that tension that's between the people who build and the people who operate. That just doesn't exist as much when you don't have humans involved. You know, I often say that I could have built satellites for a living, but that's just like building a, ro- a robot just like a robot on the factory floor uh, you know that, that has a big cage around it and humans aren't anywhere near it. It just wasn't sexy to me. It was what's really, or sexy is maybe the wrong term, it wasn't interesting to me. What was interesting to me is designing something that's going to be around a kicking, bumbling, throwing up, sick human and still making it work. <laughs>
0: now, now, now that says a lot about you. <laughs> yeah. uh, so l- l- let's go on to then the the next $10 billion of life support in the next two two decades. W- where'd you come up with this? And what does it mean to to me? What, what should I know about this?
1: Well, the the interesting thing, I, I was talking to an executive, a very high executive in a very large aerospace firm, and we were trying to get them to, to do exactly what we've been talking about, pay more attention to life support. And I found that the only way I could get their attention was, by the way, you know, you're going to get, you know, 10, 15, $20 billion or frankly, you're going to bid five, but you're going to hope you get $20 billion for building the spacecraft. And in reality, the life support system is the key. And especially now we're talking about habitats going to Mars. So, you, you know, we like I say, we have the rocket engines, everything else. We just don't have the habitat people will live in. And the NASA's newest architecture has both a habitat, what they're calling the transit vehicle, and they have a a sort of a temporary vehicle called a gateway vehicle. That the real new thing is life support. So in tradition with Mercury and Gemini and Apollo, if you go back and look at the numbers, NASA spent about ten percent of their budget on the environmental control system. So if the if you go back and look at Apollo it was about a hundred and in today's dollars, about $180 billion program. They spent about $18 billion on life support. And what I've tried to explain is now they're going to try to build a spacecraft here. That's going to cost. 10, $20 billion. It's not going to be 10% of the aircraft of the spacecraft anymore because it's the big thing. It's the thing that has to work. So they're going to be spending more. They're going to be spending 20 or 30%. And that's where I start getting into, you know, this spacecraft here is going to be three billion dollars worth of life support, and then we start looking at how many spacecraft they have to build to go to, to go to the moon and go to Mars, and you're talking about ten billion dollars of just life support systems that have to be figured out, and whether the whole program is going to cost fifty billion or a hundred billion or two hundred billion, nobody's really sure. Nobody wants it to be as much as two hundred billion, but. I guarantee there is going to be a large amount of money spent on the life support system. It's, it's just so, how it can so, be.
0: So it, it just means that there's a, a market and opportunity for individuals to participate in this part of the development of space exploration.
1: Yes. There, there is going to be no lack of work. Let's put it that way. That's why my company exists.
0: So are there, well, there'll be other companies. Um, Will there be enough engineers, designers? Are you seeing them coming out of uh, school, education, universities? Are you seeing the interest in this particular area of development?
1: Um, Not as much as I would like. Um, uh, It's an interesting thing when you're in life support because you not not only derive your talent the universities that are putting out aerospace engineers or aeronautical engineers even mechanical engineers you actually have to derive your talent pool from chemical engineers biologists um, and mechanical and obviously mechanical all the different disciplines thermal and and fluids and everything else you need electrical engineers to control uh, the systems Um, you you have we have to get a much more diverse population I mean looking out of my office and who I have working out there there. There's a whole cross section of different disciplines. And so in one regard, that makes me hopeful because I've got to pick up a larger litter. Um, but at the same time, uh, I do know that we are having a graying of the population. The people that are that have experience in designing spacecraft are now, uh, retiring. Um, and we're not sure if we're at replacement potential yet. There's a lot of fine organizations, the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics and a bunch of others, and and, and, and groups like yours that are trying to educate and get people interested. Frankly, Elon Musk has been wonderful in that regard. He has, uh, through putting webcams on all his rockets and, and going out and do, do, doing what he does in a public way, he's created a lot of sexiness so we're not now losing as many people as we did to the computer industry or something like that, or the big data analytics industry is now the big one that's, that's sucking up talent. We are actually seeing a fair amount of, of youth turning their views towards spacecraft and the problems of spacecraft that we're, we're, we're gonna see a bulge here of, of talent. And I'm hoping it's in time, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm I'm on the fence on that. I know it's still one of my biggest challenges is hiring as fast as I grow. Well,
0: the, <clears throat> the obvious, not obvious, a solution is the development of new technologies will eliminate the need for humans to have to do the work in the same way they did before. So they give you a, a progression. You used to write coding for a website and then they wrote coding that had a l- improved technology going to the HTML type movement then you got object-oriented programming where you didn't where you take something and you move it and the code is written underneath so most likely you'll have to have within this uh, environmental controls and life support a framework you'll have to start developing companies that can create object-oriented type technologies or plug and play or snap and connect so that Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've done any wiring in your own home or done any uh, electrical work where you just snap in a breaker or you just right. kind of, you stick a wire into a little hole that grabs it and holds it as compared to the old days which was wrapping it around the the screw crimping it with your pliers and then connecting it. So,
1: yeah.
0: I think that I think looking forward into this industry we're going to have to see a radically different approach to how we build the industry. And I only say that because my short time in the industry, which has only been about three years, there are a lot of old ideas. There are a tremendous amount of old ideas. There are a tremendous amount of ghosts and goblins that don't have to exist today because they existed yesterday. We can't do that because... Why not? I don't, I don't mm-hmm. get it. And right. so the new, the new wave of interest, which you mentioned many of the organizations as we're well uh, working on, and uh, as well as many others, is not only trying to solve that challenge, but to get new and innovative ideas that will completely eliminate some of the things we consider to be uh, not important is a bad word, uh, mm-hmm. done the way they were before.
1: Yeah, so and potentially really that
0: comes, that's how we'll
1: solve them. Yeah, and that comes down to the cost of human uh, uh, of human assets. I mean, it really comes down to when things get too expensive to have too many humans doing it. Uh, we very often invent things that that uh, reduce the number of humans. I mean, AT and T was a perfect example of that. They used to have switchboard operators, and what did they do? They went out and said, "Hey, these switchboard operators are getting more and more expensive. We can't afford them. We want to get." You know, AT&T's uh, mission statement was, you know, everybody talks to everybody in the world. And so they've invented all sorts of automatic systems and switchers and everything else. But it's interesting. I've seen, you know, after 30 years of doing business that very often those things that save that amount of time, they get rid of the menial tasks, um, but there is a certain amount of, of intellectual capability and design that I think is going to be extremely higher order in the AI world, in the artificial intelligence world. That that there is a creativity aspect that I think will be a long time in the making as far as being able to replace. And and one of the examples I use there is, I I used to have to quote the amount of time it took to do a drawing. And I used to, when I started out in the industry, and yes I am this old, I worked on a desk and board with pencil and vellum and I, I actually drew things. It was just right when uh, what we call computer aided design was coming up. And I knew about the amount of time it would take me to do a complex E size drawing or a, a medium complex C size drawing and everything else. I was recently involved in a quote, and I was talking to a company that I was working with about what they use to quote to get the drawings done. And 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 drawings is used in with quotation marks around it because very often now things stay within the computer and they actually don't get printed out as a drawing. And the interesting thing was the time to get something done was about the same. What had changed was the amount of fidelity and iterations that were done to get to the final product to make it more perfect to make it better. So. Whereas a designer in the 1950s could sit down and whip out an e size drawing in 40 hours and it, it could explain a part, now the designer of today in their 20s and they've grown up with computers and everything else, they're still taking that 40 hours to get the equivalent information into a system to be able to transfer over to the next. So I, I, that's just a caution. However, on the other side of the equation, um, one of the things that I believe is right down what you talked about is 3D printing. Um, 3D printing has tremendously changed the iteration process, the ability to build things. Again, I see a fair amount. In fact, I tasked my design engineers with it five years ago. Tell me how we're going to design something now that we can 3D print it. And it changed the way we designed it. It didn't make it necessarily faster, but it changed, and it gave so many more elements to what we could design you no longer had to know how to operate a, a lathe or a mill machine to design something, so you would could make it manufacturable. It's much more free now, but it's now there's new constraints involved with 3D printing. But the 3D printing thing has has really done what you said. It's it's taken things that used to take you know six months and put them into six week time frames. Uh, and believe me, we're taking advantage of that as much as we can.
0: And and what the, just a, an aside on the 3D. You, there are two companies that I'm mentioning today. Uh, there'll be more. One of them is Carbon 3D, which is out of Silicon Valley. And they're originally, I believe, out of Virginia. Uh, but don't quote me on that. And they took a process that used to take, could be upwards of six or seven hours. They do it in seven minutes. Mm-hmm. And they revolutionized the way we looked at 3D printing. And now you've got companies such as Desktop Metal that are doing metal printing. And they just raised, I think, $115 million in a Series D on the development of printing metal objects. Mm-hmm. And it's really a neat approach. So you're going, to see, you're going to see innovation within the scope of what we're doing. So I, I'm not so sure. Sh- I think that we'll see. I think we're going to have challenges with talent. And one of the, again, scope of reason you're on the line is so that people will say, hey, you know, I'm interested in doing something. And I've got this environment of controls and life support system. This is someplace that excites me and we have the right people enter. Mm-hmm. So let's get to your last point, the the, uh, the crisis, you know, water, all of those, uh, the crises that we may run into. What did you want to share there?
1: Well, it's just that, you know, Paragon in itself, you know, we, we do not all of our business is spacecraft. Um, we do life support extreme environments, and extreme environments happen everywhere, you know, down in deep water and in mines and and contaminated water, uh, you know, and you know, chemical and biological warfare. There's a bunch of other areas where extreme environments are, in, 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 uh, are encountered. But one of the things we always keep looking at is how can our technology be, quote unquote, spun out to, uh, to help more than just the extremophiles of the human species, you know, the ones that are, that are wanting to go out to space. But how can we help humans on on Earth? And and so an example is the water technology we have. We we can purify water. We can really literally you can pee in a bag and then we can extract the water. And five days later, you're drinking the water. It's it's uh, there are a few technologies you can pee in a bag and drink the water in 15 minutes. But they're not really uh, practical, so to speak. One of our challenges as a company is to Keep looking out at where our technology can go uh, outside of our sphere of, of intense interest, and I really think when we're looking at what we we have done to the environment, what we're doing to the environment, the number of people um, I you know we're at poaching I think seven billion humans now. There are some projections that put us at ten, and some put us at fifteen billion by uh, the mid to late, uh, uh, 2100 to 2000s. Um, how are we going to use that to benefit mankind? Cause ultimately, especially when you're so, spending government money, it's not only to do the mission, but it's to, uh, for the common good, so to speak. And I think that the best hope I have, or we have as a species is the developments we're doing now for our space and the extreme environments to be able to apply them back at home for things that are more consumer oriented, I guess, or more large scale. Um, and water is one of them right now for for countries that are water poor, the, the Middle Eastern countries uh, that are water poor. They're using some fairly high energy, high, um, uh high cost technologies to extract water from seawater through electrolysis or whatever I really do believe that our work is going to be extrapolated and be adapted into different ways of meeting the needs of the human species uh in and and, and and making it possible that we can live a sustainable world with you know ten billion humans so to speak and i, I think that's something that that we we can't lose sight of. Um and and it's it's important again to us. We sit down every three months and we go over what IP we're developing and we look to where it can be spun out and and be applied and and, and uh that's another exciting part, you know, and, and I've talked about water, but with you know carbon sequestration to get if either you know, there's two ways to to reduce carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. One of them is to extract it out, which is very expensive. The other one is never to put it there in the first place. And we've done some great things. You know, the amount of CO2 and the amount of other uh, pollutants put out by a, by a power plant in the 1960s is an order of magnitude more than what's put out now for the same amount of energy that's that's put onto the grid. And I see what we're doing now will be the next leap in that. Uh, in, in that whole interaction of humans and
0: Earth. You know, I, I, I couldn't have made an ad better for Project Moonshot. <laughs> that wasn't
1: intentional,
0: yeah. but I'm glad you could use it. <laughs> well, the, I'm not a space person, and people think, well, you're involved in space. I, I don't look up at the stars. I mean, I do look, but I don't look up at the stars, and I don't spend my time looking at the moon, and I don't think about those things in the same vein that I think people like you, enthusiasts, do. The whole Project Moon Hut is to say, what if we took humankind's initiatives, imagination, creativity, and focused it on a single directive, not a shotgun, space, but putting a box with a roof and a door on the moon. Having the Roger Bannister space, having that happen, having us get to the moon in the process of focusing on that achievement not self-sustaining, but sustainable life on the moon, which means we can deliver things back and forth. Mm -hmm. We will develop so many technologies that will never make it into space exploration. They will be used for energy. They will be energy creation. They will be used for uh, waste treatment. They will be used for clean water, but they'll never make it into that environment because the company, the organization, the people, the individuals will change their focus. And that's fine. And that's good. So that's that's the underlying current of what we're trying to do here. And so, yes, I, I'm glad you're looking at that. The challenge that we have is uh, how do you get that ecosystem to be a lot larger? And as much as Elon's doing what he's doing, there needs to be more. Correct. Right. So uh, any last words?
1: Well, just... Um I think that that uh, from what I've said here, I I, I hope I hope that I've given you a better understanding of uh, where where why life support is important and why you should be paying attention to it. And and and, uh, whenever you can, making sure that you're you're making the argument for uh, for 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 pushing, pushing the frontiers of exploration outward. Uh, because in the end, it always benefits humankind to explore.
0: You know, uh, yes, I, would like to thank you for, for taking the time, uh, here. And I remember while we were in, uh, Santa Monica, you had, you were supportive right after I had presented Project Moon Hut. And you, you, know, what can I do? Here are some people that you should know and we need to connect on this. And I, and I definitely appreciate that. And having you on as one of the earlier guests and talking about a topic such as life support and uh, environmental controls, just to know that there's waste, food, thermal, and air, and to categorize it in those clean four categories or pillars of environmental controls and life support, helps, I think, the the listener, the reader, the person who wants to know a little bit more about what's going on in the space industry, that there are places for them to contribute, as well as it helps to create the larger puzzle, uh, to understand the larger puzzle of what's actually going on. It's like watching a sports game (laughs) and not knowing the rules, which is, you know, I, I had a son who played lacrosse, and in the beginning, I didn't know the rules. So it was tough to watch. I loved him but I, it was challenging to watch. So I appreciate, Grant, you taking the time with us today to, to share with the, us your thoughts and uh, experiences. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, David. And for those of you who are not aware, Project Moon Hut, uh, you can visit that at projectmoonhut.org. We are an organization. It is made up of volunteers. We're all trying to create on a global scale, uh, a more community-oriented approach to developing uh, sustainable life, sustainable life on the moon, not self-sustainable, through a variety of different means. One of them is through uh, community engagement. Another one is government coordination, and the uh, last one is through alliance development. And there's a lot of information about how that's being done on an AI component, all the way down to platforms through as well as the messaging that we're putting out there so if you're interested in knowing more please reach out to us you can find us at uh at project moon hut on twitter as well as you can find us on facebook at facebook.com forward slash um project moon hut so for those of you who listened i hope you uh enjoyed the the show today and we're looking forward to bringing you more interviews in the near future thank you for listening